Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Age Institute colleague Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're thrilled. We have Natasha Lance Rogoff with us, the author of Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great, Ron. Terrific. Really looking forward to get sharing this story with our audience. It's it's a it's a it's a really roller coaster ride. So it is. Strap it was a in. Fan, Be ready. Fantastic read. All right. <laughs> Natasha Lance Rogoff is an award-winning American television producer, filmmaker, and journalist who has produced television news and documentaries in Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union for CBS, NBC, ABC, and PBS. She executive produced the Russian app adaptation of Sesame Street between 1993 and 1997. She also produced the one uh, in Mexico. Uh, Today, she produces content for television and digital platforms and is the CEO and founder of an ed tech company, an associate fellow at Harvard University's art, film, and visual studies department. She divides her time between Cambridge, Massachusetts, and New York City. Natasha, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, what an honor to have you. Um, you, it, I was telling you before we went live, you had me at the title as soon as, uh, you know, Lisa sent over the manuscript. I just looked at the title and said, oh, yeah, we, we're, we want Natasha on. And of course, I read the intro to the book and you had me hooked. So I told Ed, I said, we have to have her on. Before getting to the book, Natasha, I just have to ask you, you changed your name at 16 I, and then you moved to, and then you moved to Venezuela and I know you were an exchange student in Leningrad. Can you kind of talk about that? Because I think that is maybe how you got into all this, maybe. Well, I should start by saying Venezuela then in 1976 was not the Venezuela of today. <laughs> and uh, um, and I, I visited there just for a summer. And that was mostly to learn to speak Spanish mm. uh, and also, you know, get away from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I arranged, uh, I met uh, a family um, uh, when I was with my my own family um, on vacation, and they um, this this Venezuelan family invited me to come and stay with them, and they had nine children, and I thought this would be amazing, and we set up a our own little informal exchange, so my family hosted their daughter. And then they hosted me in Venezuela. And, um, you know, I was just fascinated with other cultures from a very young age. Uh, And this led to, um, I I also read a lot, you know, at that time and was kind of introverted. Uh, But I, um, you know, ended up moving to Moscow at age 22 uh, to study Russian. Wow. I know you read War and Peace at 16. Oh, I was ready. I mean, I was the first big book I remember reading was James Baldwin. 
And I was so uh, fascinated by this, you know, how humans could treat each other badly. You know, it was it was just something I couldn't fathom at that age. You know, it was it was I was reading about Nazi Germany, um, the civil rights movement, really just kind of getting in this whole world and then, you know, sort of becoming fascinated with uh, people who were resistors in the uh, World War Two. And then this led to, you know, revolutionaries trying to overthrow uh, systems that were evil, you know. Uh, and of course, I, I, this was during the whole evil empire, you know, the Cold War. And uh, our greatest enemy was Russia at that time. I won't even go into where we are today, but having deja vu moments. Um, and uh, so I wanted to see what it was like living inside what 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 is a dictatorship? What did it feel like? You know, so uh, my own ancestors, you know, uh, had come from Russia in 1912. They, my grandfather left Belarusia, and I had already always heard about this country, uh, and I was curious. What was it like to to live there and during the the Cold War? Well, it was, it was the period of Brezhnev and Chernyenko and, you know, sort of stagnant Soviet leaders at that time, um, but also an incredibly vibrant uh, underground culture, which I became fascinated with, was sucked into, and immediately started meeting um, uh, artists, musicians, um you know, I, I I wrote a lot about the what was then not it was the LGBTQ community, but it was not called that at the time and uh, really started covering stories of the persecution of artists. Um, and I wrote about it quite a bit for foreign press. Wow. And then to dive into the book, you know, you give a little bit of the uh, history of Sesame Street. It was birthed out of the Great Society's War on Poverty, the Civil Rights Movement. It spread to Germany and Mexico and Spain. And then they brought you in to bring it to Russia after Russia collapsed. Um, how'd, that, how'd that all happen? Totally randomly. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have any children's television experience. Um, I had been making uh, really serious documentary films about uh, the transition from communism to capitalism in the Soviet Union. Um, and that 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 film aired on PBS and also on ABC uh, Nightline, with Ted Koppel at the time. And the film predicted the coup of 1991. So that's why I had been on air. And it was that film, I believe, that executives at uh, Children's Television Workshop, the nonprofit that produces Sesame Street, saw uh, saw the film, and two executives came to one of the screenings in New York City, and they approached me and asked asked me to help them bring Sesame Street to Russia. Uh, in the process, you know, they explained that um, then Senator Biden had spearheaded congressional approval, bipartisan approval to create this Russian Sesame Street. And the idea was that the Muppets would bring idealistic values to 
um, you know, post-communist uh, society, you know, in uh, in Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia, all across the former republics um, to millions of children. Uh, but of course, I, I, you know, looked at them and I was like, well, I don't I don't have children and I don't really know anything about children's television. And um, I really I, I really don't see how I could help you. Um, but they were, uh, you know, particularly Gary Nell, who was the COO. He was very charming uh, and Steve Miller. And they just said, well, come on down and talk to us. And by the time I got down to the workshop, which is in uh, in New York City on the Upper West Side, um, where uh, the headquarters of Sesame Street, and I just, you know, was fascinated by all these young people. They were, you know, so earnest. They had, uh, you know, Muppets on their desk and and plastic, uh, you know, bobblehead Muppets and toys and everything. And um the whole place was, you know, full of activity. And I just thought, wow, this is an incredible idea. You know, imagine what this could do in, in, uh, in the Soviet Union or the post Soviet Union, you know, think about how this could change the way children see the world, that they could be less afraid. They could learn how to take risks. The, you know, the, the ways that Sesame Street, uh, traditionally teaches and the approach that they use to production, which they initially explained to me, um, you know, incorporated Russian education experts. And the whole idea was that the show would reflect the, um, the country's values and culture. So it wasn't just like we're taking an American show and we dub it and throw it into another country. The whole idea was that the entire show was going to be designed for this new society and based on the thinking of the people who live there. Natasha, I have to ask you, as you were contemplating saying yes to this offer, you talked to your sister and she thought it was a bad idea. She did. <laughs> Has she? Did she say anything after the successful run and airing and... Did oh, she my, tell you I was wrong. I, well, I have I have four siblings and we're all about a year apart. And, you know, they were very proud of me after I did it at the time, uh, just like my boyfriend, who then became my husband during this period of while I was, you know, producing the show. Um, they all, you know, were worried for me as well and often recommended bailing. And you know, anybody who was sane would, would ask themselves, is it worth it? You know, there were so many situations where, you know, uh, people who I had come to, you know, feel great fondness for, um, others who had become close friends were assassinated. And, uh, people we were working with, um, you know, had, had to face many difficulties. It was a period of incredible instability, um, you know, uh, historic economic transition, you know, where the ruble was dropping like by 25% every month. I don't even know how that's mathematically possible, but basically, you know, people were 
experiencing a tremendous feeling of pain and humiliation as their great superpower imploded. And countries like Armenia and uh, Ukraine were splitting off and becoming uh, independent countries. So this was a lot for an average person to take in. Um, and into this landscape, we were trying to create a, you know, children's puppet show, a comedy children's puppet show with original music and an original set and original puppets. And it was it was not exactly what I had uh, expected when I signed on. You know, you talk about then Senator Joe Biden and his colleagues in the Senate thought the Muppets were ideal ambassadors to model democratic values and the benefits of free market capitalism. Is, is, is that how the Sesame Street folks saw entering Russia or did they have something else in mind? I think, uh, you know, and I would say also it wouldn't be exactly a depiction of, uh, you know, that they saw it as a, uh, you know, the Sesame Street is bringing capitalism. I think it was much more about idealistic values like tolerance, freedom of expression. And part of it was trying to uh, have the mo- have the Muppets model skills that children would need to uh, thrive in an open society, such as, you know, if you have, if you're moving from a command economy into a free market economy, in a country where business of any kind, any type of independent uh, business was illegal, it's going to require an understanding of basic economic concepts. And of course, we're talking about preschool. So, you know, the concepts are more like, what is voting? Oh, let's vote. Do we want to, you know, play with crayons or do we want to vote to drink juice? (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the the level we were dealing with. And as far as market economy, you know, it it was basically um, modeling, for instance, in the neighborhood, if somebody had a small shop and they were um, fixing bicycles, that was the level on which we were uh, trying to model how this new type of society would look in Russia. That said, ours was an also an idealistic version of this because what was really happening in Russia at that time for the most part was a giant whoosh of, you know, many people in the West flooding into Russia and seeing the uh, this enormous uh, country and all the new independent countries as a as an untapped market and a place where they could potentially make a lot of money. But that wasn't really what we were looking at. What our our focus was on, you know, children's education. Uh, it was also a period that was extremely difficult for parents, uh, a time of enormous poverty. Uh, there were food shortages. Their money had lost its value. Uh, the healthcare system had collapsed. And our goal was to create this uh, kinder, more um, uh, tolerant and understanding place that children could come to with their families every evening on television, you know, first on the little screen, 
And then I think what we all hoped for, all the, you know, 400 artists I worked with from Russia and Ukraine and everywhere else, is that this society that we were showing on the TV screen would then exist in real life, you know, hopefully sometime in the future. Excellent. Well, Tasha, this is great. I know Ed's got lots more questions for you. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe and get bonus content. That is at uh, patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Get ahead, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, we are back on the Soul of Enterprise and Run. Here on the Soul of Enterprise, we often talk about the future of work and innovation. And with our new sponsor, Winolo, which stands for Work Now Locally, the future of work is here. No more resumes and no more interviews. That's right, Ed. Winolo is an innovative online staffing platform that connects available workers with companies in different industries that need jobs filled in the near future. Whether you're a worker looking for short-term jobs to make some extra money or to build your skills in a different industry, or you're a company looking for experienced local workers to help you out, you need to check them out. Winolo isn't a staffing agency. They're a marketplace for the future of work. More than 1 million people across the U.S. use Winolo to find short-term jobs based on their interests, skills, and availability. Thousands of companies have trusted Winolo, such as Papa John's, Peloton, and Edible Arrangements. Download the Winolo app from the App Store or Google Play Store to tap into the future of work or check them out on the web at wonolo.com slash soul today. 
All right. And we are now officially back on the Solar Brand Prize with Natasha Lance Rogoff, the author of Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And Natasha, you were talking about with Ron before the break about some of the the the, the, the suggestions that 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 kind of fell flat. And one of those you mentioned, you just innocently raise your hand and say, maybe we should try like a lemonade stand. And that did not go over well. Tell that story. No, that was a, that was a moment of mine of like maybe exhaust, exhaustion or some insensitivity. I was, you know, thinking about some of the concepts and the ways that we teach, you know, children about our society. And uh, I suggested that. And, uh, you know, the suggestion was met with complete horror from the creative team in Moscow. And, you know, one of the uh, teachers stood up and said, uh, uh, you know, that's a, a terrible suggestion. Uh, you know, I can't, uh, the only people who who sell things on the streets are criminals and mafia, you know, and that was true because I had just made a film where there were people on the street <laughs> selling things, you know, because it was illegal, as I said, to, to sell things uh, as an independent uh, commercial entity. Uh, but after the Soviet Union fell, it suddenly became legal. But that is a big, big transition for, you know, ordinary people to absorb. And chapter five is entitled No Gangsters on Sesame Street, which was one of one of my favorite chapters. You talk about, I guess, not realizing or maybe realizing that these these folks were criminals <laughs> that were, were were wanting to potentially invest in the Russian version of Sesame Street. Well, we had we had met uh, we had spent quite a long time. It took us several years to raise the financing and sponsorship for the for the Russian series. So even though the U.S. government, uh, the Congress, had appropriated funding for the show, uh, they insisted that the funding be matched in Russia by Russian sources, and that meant either the Russian government or private. Uh, Russian investment or sponsorship. And of course, we were a nonprofit. So there really were, were limited opportunities. We didn't, advertising was a possibility, but uh, Sesame Workshop did not want to have advertising in the show itself. Uh, that is, you know, standard public television approach as well. You know, you don't want to advertise to children. So uh, and the Russian government uh, had no money to invest in um, television. And at the time we were making Sesame Street there, most of the studios were black. They were not um, uh, filming anything. They were dark. The uh, There was no money for production other than really uh, current affairs news, mostly to focus on uh, winning the hearts and minds of people uh, either to this new democratic uh, government or to the communist government, uh, government, not government, but the communist candidates that were trying to bring back communism. And, um, you know, they were willing to do everything they could, including um, using television to the extent that they could to sway public opinion. Um, but, uh, I don't think that that um, there was there was such a um, uh, an opposition to capitalism itself. There was more not an understanding of what it was. 
because they weren't familiar uh, with with how it even looked. And when we had a curriculum se- curriculum seminar, uh, which is the uh, cornerstone of the um, developing the content for the show, uh, many of the people that that were there, you know, questioned, you know, are we able to come up with the content for this show, for this new show that's supposed to model new ways of seeing the world when we don't even know how this new world uh, is supposed to work? So it was very challenging. Um, but in the process of trying to raise the money for the show, uh, our first sponsor was a um, a pretty prominent media mogul, uh, Boris Berezovsky, who later was uh, essentially killed under suspicious circumstances in London uh, after Putin came to power. It was the same old story. And um, we met with him. It took us months to get a meeting. When we finally did, uh, he agreed to sponsor the show. And we were, you know, over the moon. Couldn't imagine this this could happen. And um, three weeks later, uh, he was blown up in a, uh, a car bombing. And although he survived, he had, you know, severe burns on him. And of course, he was no longer interested in having discussions about a puppet show. He had bigger things to worry about. Um, and we went on to, you know, the next series of meetings. And I believe that's the one you're talking about in Chapter 5, when we um, met with uh, 12 uh, very prominent uh, men. Um, I was the only woman in the room. And uh, they... I was very suspicious of this meeting, uh, but but I went <laughs> along anyway. And essentially, they they offered to sponsor the show with uh, many mul- multiples of millions. And they said that um, they had a, some kind of scheme where they were taking money from the Russian government and then they would invest it. They would make a profit because they were actually investing in the stock market and other, you know, types of uh, economic, uh, you know, instruments. And I believe the interest rate at that time, um, the, the, the people were making like 22% on their money. It was, it was a ridiculous amounts of money. And uh, I took this, this, um, this deal back to Sesame Workshop and my bosses and the higher ups were like, no, Natasha, <laughs> this is not, this This looks like a Ponzi scheme. We're not going to do this. And so that was yet another, another uh, one of our efforts. But part of the problem was, you know, the whole idea of doing business at that time in Russia and applying uh, what you would think of as rule of law to what we, you know, to, to any deals in Russia they didn't have any rule of law. There was no constitution. I mean, this is a country that went from uh, communism to something new that we were all calling, you know, democracy or capitalism, but it certainly wasn't. It did not have any of the separations of uh, powers that that are traditional in democratic society. Um, it didn't have uh, any time to transition from 
what it had come from to what it was becoming. And yet, you know, most of the Western world was euphoric over this defeat of communism and the supposed rise of democracy and capitalism in this country. But it wasn't it wasn't a reality. And we've got about two minutes before our next break. I, I, if you could just quickly sketch out for the, the next part when 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 your some of your comrades, so to speak, come to New York City to uh, to, to for the first time. So talk a little bit about that. The um, the the every every Sesame Street International co-production involves bringing the producers and um, sometimes the writers and animators and live action film directors to Sesame Workshop. So to Sesame Street and to the studio where the show is shot in America, they meet the American puppeteers, the producers, and there's really a transfer of technology. So the they're coming there not only to um, learn how Sesame Street is shot, uh, which is at that time in Russia was um, shot and produced in a way more sophisticated way than television was being shot in Russia at the time. And then they also come to share um, their own views about how they want their show to look, how they want the puppets to look, how they want the neighborhood to look, um, what are the, by this point, the the content of the show, uh, which is the basis of the show, is already developed. And now you're you're up to the point of um, deciding what is the show going to look like. We know what we going we want to teach, but how are we going to teach this? And you know, so uh, at this point, they they came to the set and they were still very skeptical about the Muppets. You know, we had months of discussions that, in my mind, you know, resembled World War Three because the Russians wanted their own puppets. They wanted to use traditional Russian puppets, which were um, typically made out of wood. And they had often very gross features like exaggerated, cruel expressions. And the Muppets were, you know, soft and foam and, um, and they didn't, they didn't really take to them in the beginning. They were just too strange looking and um, they weren't used to them. You know, they, and 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 I understood where they were coming from. You know, the the person who the woman who was the head writer at the time, she said, uh, you know, this is a time of great instability and change for our children, and they need something that's familiar. We should have our own puppets uh that um, you know, they're familiar with so that they can accept the show and they'll it will the show will appeal to them. Um, but after they they met with the American puppeteers uh, and saw the 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 shooting in process, their their opinions started to shift. But the real change I saw came when we were downtown, and I took them to uh, to their first you know genuine Irish pub to McSorley's um, in New York City. And at, when we got out of the subway, this group of guys, uh, young uh, teenagers, were across the street and they started yelling like, hey, yo, 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 you know, across at, at our group. And of course, they don't speak English. They all speak Russian. So they see this, you know, group of young men running over and 
um, they start pointing at my coat. And I had completely forgotten that I had I was wearing a bomber jacket with Bert and Ernie on the back, a giant Bert and Ernie. And so they're like, my main man, Bert and Ernie, Bert and Ernie. And then they start talking about their favorite segments and, you know, uh, which Muppet they like better. And I was translating for for the group for um, for Moscow. And they were just stunned that, you know, these people, just people in the street, you know, were like talking about this show. And it was in that moment that they grasped what this show could mean for their country and what was the potential, uh, you know, impact it could have on millions of children. So I think it gave them a sense of the responsibility they had as artists and producers and you know, writers who could, uh, you know, really transform Russia into a better place. Great stuff. Well, we're up against our next break. I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. All of our previous episodes are up there. But if you want to listen commercial-free to them, you need to check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash tsoe. And one more reminder to go to ratethispodcast.com slash tsoe, where you can, guess what, rate this podcast. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Natasha Lance Rogoff, the author of Muppets in Moscow. And Natasha, you're going through all this, these bombings, these murders, these political unrest before and even during the production. But then in, in the midst of all this, you get engaged and then you get married and less than 12 hours after you say, I do tell us what happened. 
Well, let's just say my honeymoon was rather explosive. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was, you know, married in uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, because we got a very inexpensive use of the uh, the chapel there because my husband was a professor at Princeton, and I didn't have time to plan the wedding, so he it was very sweet and he planned the whole wedding. So we finally were going to have, you know, a mini moon, like three days. It's not a honeymoon because we only had three days, and then I had to. I figured I had to go back to Moscow and you know, continue with the production. Uh, but as soon as we, you know, uh, the next day after we got to the hotel, um, I got a phone call from one of my colleagues who uh, was in the, uh, in Astankina, which is Russia's largest TV um, building. Um, it's the building from which the signal is transmitted across 11 time zones. It's also the same building from which Putin today transmits his major um, broadcasts. And it's also the same building that I visited in January 2020 recently to go back and see it. And uh, <clears throat> I got a call from my colleague. Uh, you know, I was in the, the, the blissful state of just being married. <laughs> And she uh, told me that the um, the office was being taken over by soldiers with AK-47s. Uh, and she was, you know, calm, but still frantic, you know, like, um, and she kept apologizing. She go, I'm really sorry. And she was trying to send a budget to to the office in New York because we needed the budgets to come in in order for the money to be released um you know on time uh for the production so that people could get paid and so she was trying to send this and at this is she's trying to send it at the same time that there are all of these soldiers in there with machine guns and i'm like get out of there and that you can hear the russian in the background and misha davidov who was the um my co-executive producer you know, he's arguing with them, you know, could we have 10 more minutes? And I'm just telling them, get out of there, you guys. It's not important. Forget about it, you know. And then um, uh, it, it's I write about this in the book, but eventually they they leave and the the soldiers um, take Elmo. The we had a life size mascot and Elmo, you know, stuffed Elmo. And one of the soldiers grabs it and pushes his rifle to the side and puts the the uh, Muppet underneath his arm and walks out, you know, with Elmo. <laughs> and we're like, uh, my friend sitting there going, <laughs> my, you know, my colleagues going, oh my God, this is insane. So anyway, they shut, they shut everything um, in the, uh, in the office, all of our equipment's in there, our scripts, uh, set drawings, everything. They put a lock on it and they do this on all the offices on the 11th floor of the, uh, of Astankina, of the Russian TV building. And we're, we never got any of that stuff back. I mean, it was gone. We had to rewrite wow. everything. And this is a period when, you know, com the computers were just starting. So our team was not using computers for the most part. Most of our colleagues did not know how to use computers. So it was all handwritten. Uh, you know, we were lucky if we had carbon copies of anything. So it was very, 
it was it was pretty pretty heartbreaking day uh and you know one of the one of the lowest points of the process of making sesame street in russia it coincided with your honeymoon wow uh that's just amazing the thing that i found particularly fascinating about the book were all the cultural clashes I just, you know, things like the music you were going to use in the show, they wanted classical, you wanted some more contemporary, you know, uh, should the, should the female Muppet wear jewelry? Should we show African-American children, kids in wheelchairs? Just all of that, those cultural clashes were just amazing. Can you, can you talk about that? I mean, how'd you, I know you explained this in the book, but how'd you work some of those out? Well, it's really, uh, you know, for me, it was a constant learning process of, you know, how do you find compromise? And I'm thinking about this today, especially, you know, it's the year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about how do you find compromise in this situation? There are many of the, um, you know, the themes that that Putin keeps talking about today, you know, um, uh, Russian pride and, you know, how the West is trying to destroy Russia. And, you know, we faced some of these themes at that time in the 1990s as well. And, um, you know, it's a totally different time. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we did face some of the traditional, you know, attitudes um, that have been written about by, you know, people specialized in Russian literature and history. And these themes run through uh, Russian uh, history and uh, come up again and again. And yeah. as we were doing the, the show, um, you know, there were, there were times when, when uh, it just became clear that we were seeing things very differently. Um, and I think that's that's really what you're what you're talking about. You know, when the the music director at first insisted that all the music should be classical, and of course, from her perspective, that made sense because most of of children's animated cartoons used classical music at that, that time, and that was traditional. Um, and if if you haven't seen Sesame Street and most of them had not seen it, you know, and then we showed it to them, but they didn't grow up with it. Um, and Sesame Street is known for its, you know, really innovative and diverse music. So I can imagine when you introduce that to a society that's more traditional, listening to it, and, and even in America, when Sesame Street first came on, you know, it wasn't as though it was immediately embraced. There were many people who talked about the fact that it was, you know, too fast, you know, for children. And, um, you know, the, so we were dealing with the same, same, some of the same issues in, in Russia at the time, but it wasn't really me who solved uh, these issues. You know, my, my goal was to bring together people who had divergent views. So the way uh, the classical music debate was resolved um, because I really wanted the show to be like Sesame Street in terms of offering uh, modern sounds, um, as well as giving the uh, 
you know, the musicians who'd been persecuted under communism and couldn't record their music or sell their music because rock music was banned. You know, even when I first arrived in in Russia at the time, it was still banned. So I thought, you know, since I was the person in charge of this program, wow, I had an opportunity to give people opportunity, you know, give allow different kinds of people the opportunity to make music for the show. So I introduced the music director to one of my very old friends who was um, at that point really a, a, a you know a, a star, a music uh, a music artist who had become quite well known, but he was he was not only doing rock, he was doing punk. And she came from a classically trained, you know, Moscow conservatory background. So these two met, and I have to say, the music director was incredibly nervous to meet Sasha. Um, but they they went off together, and when they came back, she was glowing, and she just said, "I had no idea, you know, we have children the same age, and." I didn't realize that this man, you know, who's dressed in leather pants, you know, that are, you know, tight against his thighs and he has a, a an earring, you know, <laughs> could I could have something in common with him. But they found that they they both, you know, love music. They they shared uh, a lot of the same values. And that was the turning point. And from then on, she became a champion of all of these young artists who uh, made the most um, genius, artistically genius music for Ulitsa Sazam. Wow. Well, Natasha, thank you so much. This has been an honor and a thrill to be able to chat to you about this great book. I know Ed's, Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I just wanted to say thank you. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors, including Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! (laughs) 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is Muppets in Moscow, The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. And with us today is Natasha Lance Rogoff, who is our uh, the author of this book. And Natasha, there are so many touching and poignant moments in, in this book. And I really want to strongly encourage all of our listeners to, to go and, and read the whole thing. And we're not going to give all the spoilers away, but let's just say that Sesame Street does get made ultimately. But it doesn't matter because there are so many good and wonderful stories that I think you're gonna gonna love. Um, one of them is when you have you're auditioning for the the children's roles, and they come in and tell us what happens with with, with this audition. That what you're expecting and what actually happened were two very different things. Right. Well, I was looking forward to this day for months. I mean, the whole idea that you could, you know listen to the soprano voices of like twelve hundred children that were going to come and audition and uh, it was a very exciting day. And um, when it finally arrived, uh, the chief director asked me to uh, sit over to the side because most of the people that were coming in, and many had come from small villages outside of Moscow as well, that they really had never met a foreigner before. And he thought it might just be distracting, you know, if they, they might be nervous meeting an American. So I, I sat in the back and you know, the first, um, all the kids were came in independent of each other. They are, were isolated from each other. So they didn't hear each other, um, per, you know, doing their auditions. And the first little boy comes in and he says that he wants to stand and sing. And um, suddenly his voice drops a couple of octaves and he starts singing this song from World War II, uh, which is from a, a film called Belaruski Vagzal. And he said, the song goes something like, the planet is burning, everything is lost. And I'm just sitting here like wondering what, okay, this is a very weird song to audition for a children's comedy show. So I think, okay, that's, you know, it's it's as far as it can be from, you know, itsy bitsy spider, or old McDonald's had a farm. And then, uh, he leaves and the, the next little girl comes in and a little blonde girl with blue eyes and she's got an absolutely beautiful voice and she sings a song, Katusha, which is uh, a woman uh, singing to her lover uh, as he goes off to the front to fight. So this goes on for the rest of the morning. And most of the songs are World War II songs that are incredibly depressing and morose, you know. So uh, at lunchtime, I mean, I'm beside myself because I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is like, how can we make a children's television show with this? If this is like the music we're going to have and I'm worried, I already was having this argument with the you know, the the uh, music director about classical music versus modern music. So all of this is going on. At the same yeah, it certainly time. wasn't C is for cookie. That's for sure. <laughs> right. And so I asked the director about it and he says, uh, uh, Natasha, you don't understand. Uh, I go, why? Why are these children all singing these, you know, sad songs? And he says, these songs are not sad. 
they're lyrical. And um, he says, you know, you don't understand these children, they, they sing these songs because they heard them from their grandmother with their grandmothers. These songs bring them comfort. And I'm still looking a little confused. And then he says, uh, you have to realize that our children, uh, they read poetry from a very young age. They sing these songs with their grandmothers. And these songs um, are lyrical and sometimes sad, but our children expect sadness in their songs and in their life lives. So that was that was a a, a real marker, uh, you know. And in the book, I go into you know what this what this conversation led to, and how we ended up moving from a place of the uh, creative team wanting to include uh, sad songs, as I called them, lyrical songs, as he called them, Valodia. Um, but you know, we ended up using a, a process of testing. Uh, these the music with children, um, and uh, eventually, um, you know, we came to a compromise, and the music that is in the show is um, very beautiful and also very Russian. And you said you had a little bit of a meme. Oh yeah, this? the meme. I was going to say that now. I was thinking about that story. Uh, you know, today. Because there are memes going around the internet, there's a, there's an expression Russian Russia for Russians, and the memes are showing classic Soviet images with the words "sadness is for Russians." Mm. There you go. Wow. It's a, it's a terrific book. So thank you for sharing it with us today. We are right against the, the, the show close, but Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk about one thing. One thing. All right. Thing. What's that one thing? I guess that's what we'll <laughs> reveal next week. All right. I'll see you in 167 hours then, Ron. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes on our discussion with Natasha today and where to find her book. And also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.